Welcome to this Dragonlance Saga Gaming Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition episode. <laughs> it's actually a reading, so it's not really a gaming, but it's like a gaming reading. I don't know. It's crazy. My name is Adam, and I'm starting a Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition Dragonlance Shadows of the Dragon Queen game in December. So I thought it'd be fun to read the free basic rules aloud and discuss them with a live audience, if <laughs> there is a live audience. I'd like to take a moment and thank the members of this channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the links in the description below and remind you, you can always pick up Dragonlance Gaming materials using my affiliate link. All right, so last time we left off on the Uncommon Races and since then, I've actually read the entire player's handbook and I realized that this is exactly the same thing. <laughs> like there's no reason to buy a player's handbook. I don't know if you guys know that. You just read these for free and reference them for free on their website. All right. Uncommon Races The Dragonborn and the rest of the races in this chapter are uncommon. They don't exist in every world of Dungeons and & Dragons, and even when they are found, they're less widespread than dwarves, elves, halflings, and humans. Hey Pat, thanks for doing live. What's up, Chris? In the cosmopolitan cities of the D&D multiverse, most people hardly look twice at folk they interact with, but the small towns and villages that dot the countryside are different. The common folk aren't accustomed to seeing members of these races, and they often react with curious wariness or wonder. Dragonborn Her father stood on the first of the three stairs that led down from the portal, unmoving. The scales of his face had grown paler around the edges, but clanless Mayan still looked as if he could wrestle down a dire bear himself. His familiar well-worn armor was gone, replaced by violet tinted scale armor with bright silvery tracings. There was a blazon on his arm as well, the mark of some foreign house. The sword at his back was the same, though, the one he had carried since even before he had found the twins left in swaddling at the gates of Arish Vaim. For all her life, Ferida had known that reading her father's face was a skill she'd been fortunate to learn. A human who couldn't spot the shift of her eyes or Havilar's would certainly see only the indifference of a dragon in clanless man's face. But the shift of scales, the arc of a ridge, the set of his eyes, the gape of his teeth, his father's face spoke volumes. Her father's face. But every scale of it this time seemed completely still, the indifference of a dragon, even to Farida. Aaron M. Evans, the adversary. Uh, hey, Arrakis. Hey, Solid Crumbie. Born of dragons, as their name proclaims, the dragonborn walk proudly through a world that greets them with fearful incomprehension. Shaped by draconic gods or the dragons themselves, dragonborn originally hatched from dragon eggs as a unique race, combining the best attributes of dragons and humanoids. Some dragonborn are faithful servants to true dragons, Other forms, uh, others form the ranks of soldiers in great wars, and still others find themselves adrift with no clear calling in life. Proud dragon kin. Dragonborn looked very much like dragons standing erect in human form, though they lack wings or a tail. The first dragonborn had scales of vibrant hues matching the colors of their dragon kin, but generations of interbreeding had created a more uniform appearance. Their small, fine scales are usually brass or bronze in what? In color, brass or bronze. Sometimes ranging to scarlet, rust, gold, or copper green. They are tall. What are these noble draconians? They are tall and strongly built, often standing close to six and a half feet tall and weighing three hundred pounds or more. Their hands and feet are strong. 
talon-like claws with three fingers and a thumb on each hand. The blood of a particular type of dragon runs very strong through some dragonborn clans. These dragonborn often boast scales that more closely match those of their dragon ancestor. Bright green, I'm sorry, bright red, green, blue, or white, lustrous black, or gleaming metallic gold, silver, brass, copper, or bronze. Well, apparently not. Self-sufficient clans. To any dragonborn, the clan is more important than life itself. Dragonborn own their devotion and respect to their clan above all else, even the gods. Each dragonborn's conduct reflects on the honor of his or her clan, and bringing dishonor to the clan can result in expulsion and exile. Each dragonborn knows his or her station and duties within the clan, and honor demands maintaining the bonds of that position. A continual drive of self-improvement reflects the self-sufficiency of the race as a whole. Dragonborn value skill and excellence in all endeavors. They hate to fail, and they push themselves to extreme efforts before they give up on something. A dragonborn holds mastery of a particular skill as a lifetime goal. Members of other races who share the same commitment find it easy to earn the respect of dragonborn. Though all dragonborn strive to be self-sufficient, they recognize that help is sometimes needed in difficult situations. But the best source for such help is the clan. When a clan needs help, it turns to another dragonborn clan before seeking aid from other races, or even from the gods. Hey, draconians! In the Dragonlance setting, the followers of the evil god Tachesis learned a dark ritual that let them corrupt the eggs of metallic dragons, producing evil dragon bull- What?! What? No. <laughs> that is not true. They did not create Dragonborn in Dragonlands. Those are Draconians. They're not called Draconians. They are Draconians. Dragonborn are not Draconians. They're completely different. They don't explode. They have breath weapons. They lack tails and wings. What the hell? <laughs> Just retcon the entire Draconian species, huh? Nine, nine. Five types of Draconians, corresponding to the five types of metallic dragons, fought for Tachesis in the War of the Lance. Arax, Gold, Baz, Brass, Bozak, Bronze, Kapak, Copper, and Sivak, Silver. In place of their Draconic Breath weapons, they have unique magical abilities. They're not the same thing! No wonder why so many people are confused! This whole time I've been thinking, are 5th edition players just fucking stupid? Sorry, not... <laughs> didn't mean to swear. Are they just stupid? Because they're clearly different species. Different origins, different everything. But no, they're confused because 5th edition is making it confusing. Oh my gosh, that is infuriating. <laughs> it's not even close to the same thing. Ugh. Hey, Rackus. I already said hi to you. Hey, Tamu. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a little, uh flustered now. That actually kind of makes me angry. So what? They literally are noble draconians if they're not the metallic uh, dragons? Like, I don't I don't, that doesn't what? <laughs> this does not compute. My head's gonna explode. Dragonborn names. Dragonborn have personal names given at birth, but they put their clan names first as a mark of honor. A childhood name or nickname is often used among clutchmates as a descriptive term or terms of endearment. The name might recall an event or center on a habit. And you can see the male, female, childhood, and clan names here. That's frustrating, man. Ugh. Not 
the same thing. They're all scaly scum. <laughs> uh, yeah, most do, not all. Most. All right, Dragonborn Traits. A Draconic Heritage manifests in a variety of traits you share with other Dragonborn. Ability score increase. Your strength score increases by two and your charisma score increases by one. Age. Young Dragonborn grow quickly. They walk hours after hatching, attain the size and development of a 10-year-old human child by the age of 3, and reach adulthood by 15. They live to be around 80. Size. Dragonborn are taller and heavier than humans, standing well over 6 feet tall and averaging almost 250 pounds. Your size is medium. Speed. Your base walking speed is 30 feet. Draconic Ancestry. And you can see the different Dragon Ancestor, the damage type, and the type of breath weapon that you get to use, depending on that type. Um... All right, this kind of, so they're all the same height, over six feet tall. I don't, that doesn't, what is they? They're all scaly scum, long time 5e player, and we don't think like that in game at all. Well, that's good, Solid Combi, because I've heard it, like, since I started this channel last March, I've heard a bunch of people say, aren't they the same thing? No, no, they're not. Draconic Ancestry. You have Draconic Ancestry. Choose one type of dragon from the Draconic Ancestry table. Your breath weapon and damage resistance are determined by the dragon type, as shown on the table. Breath weapon. You can use your action to exhale destructive energy. Your Draconic Ancestry determines the size, shape, and damage type of the exhalation. Why would they choose the breath weapon but not the wings? Like, given an option, like, I would like wings. I don't know. How often are you breathing fire? When you use your breath weapon, each creature in the area of the exhalation must make a saving throw, the type of which is determined by your draconic ancestry. The DC for the saving throw equals 8 plus your constitution modifier plus proficiency bonus. A creature takes 2d6 damage on a failed save and half as much damage on a successful one. The damage increases to 3d6 at 6th level, 4d6 at 11th level, and 5d6 at 16th level. After you use your breath weapon, you can't use it again until you complete a short or long rest. Ah. So you just got pop an Altoid in there and you're good to go. Damage resistance. You have resistance to the damage type associated with your Draconic Ancestry. You know, I was making a comment uh, a little while ago on a live stream about how you can actually attack and kill dragons with the same type of weapon that their breath weapon is. Like trying to like shoot flames or a fireball at a red dragon doesn't make sense to me it's like the dragon should be immune and i had people shaking their fists in the chat saying no that's not right there's precedent for why they take damage even if they are you can you know they, they take damage from other dragon breath weapons blah 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 and yet these guys don't dragonborn don't so why the hell do dragons what what kind of shit is that Languages. You can speak, read, and write common and draconic. Draconic is thought to be one of the oldest languages and is often used in the study of magic. The language sounds harsh to most other creatures and includes numerous harsh consonants and sibilants. Oh, yeah. Gnomes. Skinny and flaxen-haired, his skin walnut-brown and his eyes a startling turquoise. Burgel stood half as tall as Aaron and had to climb up on a stool to look out the people. Like most habitations on Ol Ob Obel? Obel? That 
that particular tenant had been built for humans, and smaller residents coped with the resulting awkwardness as best they could. But at least the relative largeness of the apartment gave Burgell room to pack in all his gnome-sized gear. The front room was his workshop, and it contained a bewildering mis uh, miscellany of, can't say that word, of tools, hammers, chisels, saws, lockpicks, tinted lenses, jewelers, loops, and jars of powdered and shredded ingredients for casting spells. A fat gray cat, a mage's familiar, lay curled atop a grimoire. It opened its eyes, gave Arn a disdainful yellow stare, and then appeared to go back to sleep. Richard Lee Byers, The Black Bouquet. A constant hum of busy activity pervaded, uh, pervades the warrens and neighborhoods where gnomes form their close-knit communities. Louder sounds punctuate the hum, a crunch of grinding gears here, a minor explosion there, a yelp of surprise or triumph, and especially bursts of laughter. Gnomes take delight in life, enjoying every moment of invention, exploration, investigation, creation, and play. Vibrant expression. A gnome's energy and enthusiasm for living shines through every inch of his or her tiny body. Gnomes average slightly over three feet tall and weigh 40 to 45 pounds. Their tanner brown faces are usually adorned with broad smiles beneath their prodigious noses, and their bright eyes shine with excitement. Their fair hair has a tendency to stick out in every direction, as if expressing the gnome's insatiable interest in everything around. Sounds a little Kender-like. A gnome's personality is writ large in his or her appearance. A male gnome's beard, in contrast to his wild hair, is kept carefully trimmed, but often styled in curious forks or neat points. A gnome's clothing, though usually made in modest earth tones, is elaborately decorated with embroidery, embossing, or gleaming jewels. Delighted dedication. As far as gnomes are concerned, being alive is a wonderful thing, and they squeeze every ounce of enjoyment out of their three to five centuries of life. Humans might wonder about getting bored over the course of such a long life, and elves take plenty of time to savor the beauty of the world in their long years. But gnomes seem to worry that even with all that time, they can't get in enough of the things that they want to do and see. Gnomes speak as if they can't get the thoughts out of their heads fast enough. Even as they offer ideas and opinions on a range of subjects, they still manage to listen carefully to others, adding the appropriate exclamations of surprise and appreciation along the way. Though gnomes love jokes of all kinds, particularly puns and pranks, they just as dedicated to the more serious tasks they undertake. Many gnomes are skilled engineers, alchemists, tinkers, and inventors. They're willing to make mistakes and laugh at themselves in the process of perfecting what they do, taking bold, sometimes foolhardy risks, and dreaming large. Bright Burrows Gnomes make their homes in hilly, wooded lands. They live underground, but get more fresh air than the dwarves do, enjoying the natural living world on the surface whenever they can. Their homes are well hidden by both clear, I'm sorry, clever construction and simple illusions. Welcome visitors are quickly ushered into the bright, warm burrows. Those who are not welcome are unlikely to find the burrows in the first place. Gnomes who settle in human lands are common gem cutters, engineers, sages, or tinkers. Some human families retain gnome tutors, ensuring that their pupils enjoy a mix of serious learning and delighted enjoyment. A gnome might tutor several generations of a single human family over the course of his or her long life. Always appreciative. It's rare for a gnome to be hostile or malicious, unless he or she has suffered a grievous, in a grievous injury. Gnomes know that most races don't share their sense of humor, but they enjoy every anyone's company just as they enjoy anything else they set out to do. Gnome Names Gnomes 
love names and have half a dozen or so. A gnome's mother, father, clan elder, aunts, and uncles each give the gnome a name and various nicknames from just about everyone else might or might not stick. What? From just about everyone else might or might not stick over time. Gnome names are typically variants on the names of ancestors or distant relatives, though some are purely new inventions. When dealing with gnomes and others who are stuffy about names, a gnome learns to use no more than three names, a personal name, a clan name, and a nickname, choosing the one in each category that's most fun to say. Here's a list of male-female clan nicknames. Seeing the world. Curious and impulsive, gnomes might take up adventuring as a way to see the world for the love of exploring. As lovers of gems and other fine items, some gnomes take to adventuring as a quick, if dangerous, path to wealth. Regardless of what spurs them to adventure, gnomes who adopt this way of life eke as much enjoyment out of it as they do any other activity they undertake, sometimes to the great annoyance of their adventuring companions. Gnome traits. Your gnome character has certain characteristics in common with other gnomes. Ability score increase. Your intelligence score increases by two. Age. Gnomes mature at the same rate humans do, and most are expecting to settle down into adult life by around age 40. They can live 350 to almost 500 years. Size. Gnomes are between three and four feet tall and average about 40 pounds. Your size is small. Speed. Your base walking speed is 25 feet. Dark vision. Accustomed to life underground, you have superior vision in dark and dim conditions. You can see in dim light within 60 feet of you as if it were bright light, and in darkness as if it were dim light. You can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. Gnome Cunning You have advantage on all intelligence, wisdom, and charisma saving throws against magic. Languages You can speak, read, and write common and gnomish. The gnomish language, which uses a dwarvish script, is renowned for its technical treatises and, is catalog and its catalogs of knowledge around the natural world. Subrace. Two subraces of gnomes are found among the worlds of Dungeons and Dragons. Forest gnomes and rock gnomes. Choose one. <laughs> so one's the Keebler elf and one is, uh, what? Choose one of these subraces. Deep gnomes. A third subrace of gnomes, the deep gnomes, or Sverfneblin. <laughs> live in small communities scattered in the Underdark. Unlike the Durgar and the Drow, Sverfnoblin are as good as... what? How do you say it? Am I saying that right? Are as good as their surface cousins. However, their humor and enthusiasm are dampened by their oppressive environment and their inventive expertise is directed mostly towards stonework. Oh, cool. Thanks, Savage. Rock Gnome. As a rock gnome, you have a natural inventiveness and hardiness beyond that of other gnomes. Most gnomes in the worlds of D&D are rock gnomes, including the tinker gnomes of the Dragonlance setting. Oh, yeah. Ability score increase. Your constitution score increases by one. Artifice's lore. Whenever you make an intelligence history check related to magic items, alchem alchemical objects, or technological devices, you can add twice your proficiency bonus instead of any proficiency bonus you normally apply. Tinker. You have proficiency with artisan tools, tinkers tools. Using those tools, you can spend one hour and ten gold pieces worth of material to construct a tiny clockwork device, AC5, one hit point. This device ceases to function after 24 hours unless you spend one hour repairing it to keep the device functioning, or when you use your action to dismantle it. At that time, you can reclaim the materials used to create it. You can have up to three such devices active at a time. When you create a device, choose one of the following options, clockwork toy, 
This toy is a clockwork animal, monster, or person, such as a frog, mouse, bird, dragon, or soldier. When placed on the ground, the toy moves five feet across the ground on each of your turns in a random direction. It makes noises as appropriate to the creature it represents. Firestarter. The device produces a miniature flame, which you can use to light a candle, torch, or campfire. Using the device requires your action. Music Box. When opened, the music box plays a single song at a moderate volume. The box stops playing when it reaches the song's end or when it is closed. So that's the most useless ability ever. You can't actually make... Like, at least Tinker Gnomes and Dragonlets can make things that might work once. <laughs> Equally, might blow up in your face. But still, <laughs> it might work. I mean, this is just like a little, th a little th nothing, like a, a lighter. You can make a Zippo in a music box. Come on. Half-Elf. Flint squinted into the setting sun. He thought he saw the figure of a man striding up the path. Standing, Flint drew back into the shadows of a tall pine to see better. The man's walk was marked by an easy grace, an elvish grace. Flint would have said... Yet the man's body had the thickness and tight muscles of a human, while the facial hair was definitely humankind's. All the dwarf could see was the man's face beneath a green hood, was tan skin and a brownish-red beard. A longbow was slung over one shoulder, and a sword hung at his left side. He was dressed in soft leather, carefully tooled in the intricate designs the elves loved. But no elf in the world of Kryn could grow a beard. No elf but... Tannis! said Flint hesitantly as the man neared. The same! The newcomer's bearded face split in a wide grin. He held open his arms and before the dwarf could stop him, engulfed Flint in a hug that lifted him off the ground. The dwarf clasped his old friend close for a brief instant, then, remembering his dignity, squirmed and freed himself from the half-elf's embrace. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. I love that scene. Walking in two worlds truly belonging to neither, half-elves combine what some say are the best qualities of their elf and human parents. Human curiosity, inventiveness, and ambition, tempered by the refined senses, love of nature, and artistic tastes of the elves. Some half-elves live among humans, set apart by their emotional and physical differences, watching friends and loved ones age while time barely touches them. Others live with the elves, growing restless as they reach adulthood in the timeless elven realms. While their peers continue to live as children, many half-elves, unable to fit into either society, choose lives of solitary wandering or join with other misfits and outcasts in the adventuring life. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. Of two worlds. To humans, half-elves look like elves. And to elves, they look like human. In height, they're on par with both parents, though they're neither as slender as elves nor as broad as humans. They range from under five feet to about six feet tall and from 100 to 180 pounds, with men only slightly taller and heavier than women. Half-elf men do have facial hair and sometimes grow beards to mask their elven ancestry. Half-elven coloration and features lie somewhere between their human and elf parents and thus show a variety even more pronounced than that found among either race. They tend to have the eyes of their elven parents. Diplomats or Wanderers Half-elves have no lands of their own, though they are welcome in human cities and somewhat less welcome in elven forests. In large cities and regions where elves and humans often interact, half-elves are sometimes numerous enough to form small communities of their own. 
then enjoy, I'm sorry, they enjoy the company of other half-elves, the only people who truly understand what it is to live between these two worlds. In most parts of the world, though, half-elves are uncommon enough that one might live for years without meeting another. Some half-elves prefer to avoid company altogether, wandering the wilds as trappers, foresters, hunters, or adventurers, and visiting civilization only rarely. Like elves, they are driven by the wanderlust that comes of their longevity. Others, in contrast, throw themselves into the thick of society, putting their charisma and social skills to great use in diplomatic roles or as swindlers. Excellent Ambassadors Many half-elves learn at an early age to get along with everyone, diffusing hostility and finding common ground. As a race, they have elven grace without elven aloofness and human energy without human boorishness. Hey, I take offense to that. <laughs> they often make excellent ambassadors and go-betweens, except between elves and humans, since each side suspects the half-elf of favoring the other. Half-elf names. Half-elves use either human or elven naming conventions as if to emphasize that they don't really fit into either society. Half-elves raised among humans are often given elven names, and those raised among elves often take human names. Half-elf traits. Your half-elf character has some qualities in common with elves, and some that are unique to half-elves. Ability score increase, your charisma score increases by two, and two other ability scores of your choice increase by one. Age. Half-elves mature at the same rate humans do and reach adulthood around the age of 20. They live much longer than humans, however, often exceeding 180 years. Size. Half-elves are about the same size as humans, ranging from 5 to 6 feet tall. Your size is medium. Speed. Your base walking speed is 30 feet. Dark vision. Thanks to your elf blood, you have superior vision in dim and dark and dim conditions. You can see in dim light within 60 feet of you as if it were bright light, and in darkness as if it were dim light. You can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. Fey Ancestry. You have advantage on saving throws against being charmed, and magic can't put you to sleep. Oh, that's helpful. Skill Versatility. You gain proficiency in two skills of your choice. Languages. You can speak, read, and write common, elvish, and one extra language of your choice. Half-Orc. The War Chief Murin roused himself from his sleeping furs and his women and pulled a short hauberk of heavy steel rings over his thick, well-muscled torso. He usually rose before most of his warriors, since he had a strong streak of human blood in him, and he found the daylight less bothersome than most of his tribe did. Among the bloody skulls, a warrior was judged by his strength, his fierceness, and his wits. Human ancestry has no blemish, was no blemish against a warrior, providing he was every bit as strong, enduring, and bloodthirsty as his full-blooded kin. Half-orcs, who were weaker than their orc comrades, didn't last long among the Bloody Skulls, or any other orc tribe for that matter. But it was okay, I'm sorry, it was often true that a bit of human blood gave a warrior just the right mix of cunning, ambition, and self-discipline to go far indeed, as Murin had. He was master of a tribe that could muster 2,000 spears and the strongest chief in Thar. Richard Baker, Sword Mage. Whether united under the leadership of a mighty warlock, or having fought to a standstill after years of conflict, orc and human communities sometimes form alliances. When these alliances are sealed by marriages, half-orcs are born. <laughs> what? Wait, what? When these alliances are sealed by marriages, half-orcs are born? That's not how, uh... That's not how birth works. 
<laughs> I didn't, you don't have to wait until marriage. Just putting that out there, people. Some half-orcs rise to become proud leaders of orc communities. Some venture into the world to prove their worth. Many of these become adventurers, achieving greatness for their mighty deeds. This makes it sound like as soon as they like put, go hand-in-hand, hand, a baby just shits out. <laughs> it's just like, oh, we made a half-orc. Wonderful. Scarred and strong. <laughs> You're right, Andrew. <laughs> I have... I have less moral standards than half-orcs. That is 100%. All right, uh, scarred and strong. Half-orcs exhibit a blend of orcish and human characteristics, and their appearance varies widely. Grayish skin tones and prominent teeth are the most common shared elements among these folk. Half-orcs stand between 5 and 7 feet tall and usually weigh between 180 and 250 pounds. Orcs regard battle scars as tokens of pride and ornamental scars as things of beauty. Other scars, though, mark an orf, orc or half-orc as a former prisoner or a disgraced exile. Any half-orc who has lived among or near orcs has scars, whether they're marks of humiliation or of pride, recounting their past exploits and injuries. The Mark of Groomsh The one-eyed god Groomsh, lord of war and fury, created the first orcs, and even those orcs who turn away from his worship carry his blessings of might and endurance. The same is true of half-orcs. Some half-orcs hear the whispers of Groomsh in their dreams, calling to them, uh, calling them to unleash the rage that simmers within them. Others feel Groomsh's exultation when they join in melee combat, and either exult along with him or shiver with fear and loathing. Beyond the rage of Groomsh, half-orcs feel emotion powerfully. Rage doesn't just quicken their pulse, it makes their bodies burn. An insult stings like acid. And sadness saps their strength. But they laugh loudly and heartily at simple pleasures. Feasting, drinking, wrestling, drumming, and wild dancing fill their hearts with joy. They tend to be short-tempered and sometimes sullen, more inclined to action than contemplation, and to fighting than arguing. And when their hearts swell with love, they leap to perform acts of great kindness and compassion. Half-Orc Names Half-orcs usually have names appropriate to the culture in which they were raised. A half-orc who wants to fit in among humans might trade an orc name for a human name. Some half-orcs with human names decide to adopt a guttural orc name because they think it makes them more intimidating. Half-orc traits. Your half-orc character has certain traits deriving from your orc ancestry. Ability score increase. Your strength score increases by 2 and your constitution score increases by 1. Age. Half-orcs mature a little faster than humans, reaching adulthood around age 14. They age noticeably faster and rarely live longer than 75 years. Size. Half-orcs are somewhat larger and bulkier than humans, and they range from 5 to well over 6 feet tall. Your size is medium. Speed. Your base walking speed is 30 feet. Dark vision. Thanks to your orc blood, you have superior vision in dark and dim conditions. You can see in dim light within 60 feet of you as if it were bright light, and in darkness as if it were dim light. You can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. Menacing. You gain proficiency in the intimidation skill. Relentless endurance. You're reduced to zero hit, uh, when you're reduced to zero hit points but not killed outright, you can drop to one hit point instead. What? You can't use this feature again until you finish long rest. Wow, that's really great. Savage attacks. When you score a critical hit with a melee weapon attack, you can roll one of the weapon's damage dice one additional time and add it to the extra damage of the critical hit. Whoa, so you get three die damages? 
or three different rolls of damage on a crit. Languages. You can speak, read, and write common and orc. Orc is harsh, grating language with hard consonants. It has no script of its own, but is written in the Dwarvish script. Tiefling. Uh, if a player wanted to play a Dragonborn in your D&D game, you have to say that a dragon cursed into halfway through transformation. Half-orcs had reskin as half-ogres. Oh, interesting. But you do see the way people look at you, Devil's Child. Those black eyes, cold as a winter storm, were staring right into her heart, and the sudden seriousness in his voice jolted her. What does they say? he asked. One's a curiosity. Two's a conspiracy. Three's a curse, she finished. You think I haven't heard that rubbish before? I know you have. When she glared at him, he added, It's not as if I'm plumbing the depths of your mind, dear girl. That's the burden of every tiefling. Some break under it. Some make it the millstone around the neck. Some revel in it. He tilted his head again, scrutinizing her with that wicked glint in his eyes. You fight, don't you? Like a little wildcat, I wager. Every little jab and comment just sharpens your claws. Aaron M. Evans, Brimstone Angels. To be greeted with stares and whispers. To suffer violence and insults in the street. To see mistrust and fear in every eye. This is the lot of the tiefling. And to twist the knife? Tieflings know that this is because a pact struck generations ago infused the essence of Asmodeus, overlord of the Nine Hells, into their bloodline. Their appearance and their nature are not their fault, but the result of an ancient sin for which they and their children and their children's children will always be held accountable. So someone got it on with Asmodeus and all of their kin is cursed. I actually really like this idea that they're um, putting in here about how these uh, other races like Dragonborn, Gnome, Half-Elf, Half-Orc, and Tiefling are supposed to be rare. And so if you were walking down a street, people looking at a tiefling would freak out. I love the idea, but I've never seen it actually played that way in any campaign ever. Everyone's just like, oh, I'm a little kitty cat. And the other person's like, oh, I'm a tiefling. And the other one's like, oh, I'm a dragonborn. And everyone they go and meet are just like, hey, how's it going, normal person? Never is it like, ah, and then they run off. Right? Like, what, what the crap? Play it like it's supposed to be played. That's what I say. All right. Infernal bloodline. Tieflings are derived from human bloodlines, and in the broadest possible sense, they still look human. However, their infernal heritage has left a clear imprint on their appearance. Tieflings have large horns that take any of the variety of shapes. Some have curling horns like a ram. Others have straight and tall horns like a gazelle's. <laughs> and some spiral upward like an antelope's horns. Jeez. They have thick tails, four to five feet long, which lash or coil around their legs when they get upset or nervous. Their canine teeth are sharp, po uh, sharply pointed, and their eyes are solid colors. Black, red, white, silver, or gold, with no visible sclera or pupil. That's awesome sounding. Their skin tones cover the full range of human colorization, but also include various shades of red. Their hair, cascading down from behind their horns, is usually dark from black or brown to dark red, blue, or purple. That's cool. I would never allow one of these in Dragonlance. Self-reliant and suspicious. Tieflings subsist in small minorities found mostly in human cities or towns, often in the roughest quarters of those places where they grow up to be swindlers, thieves, or crime lords. Sometimes they live among other minority populations in enclaves where they're treated with more respect. 
Lacking a homeland, tieflings know that they have to make their own way in the world and that they have to be strong to survive. They're not quick to trust anyone who claims to be a friend, but when a tiefling's companion demonstrates that they can trust him or her, the tiefling learns to extend the same trust to them. And once a tiefling gives someone loyalty, the tiefling is a firm friend or ally for life. Met with mistrust. Ignorant people tend to be suspicious of tieflings, assuming that their infernal heritage has left its mark on their personality and morality, not just their appearance. The reality is that a tiefling's bloodline doesn't affect their personality. They're gifted with magic from the infernal realms, but chart their own course in life. Tiefling names. Tiefling names fall into three broad categories. Tieflings born into another culture typically have names reflective of that culture. Some have names derived from the infernal language passed down through generations that reflect their fiendish heritage. And some younger tieflings strive to find a place in the world, adopt a name that signifies a virtue or other concept, and then try to embody that concept. For some, the chosen name is a noble quest. For others, it's a grim destiny. Nice. Tiefling traits. Tieflings share certain racial traits. Were they, they were introduced in 3rd edition, right? Like that was the first, or was it? Yeah, it, was, it had to be 3rd edition, I think. Unless it was Planescape's 2nd edition, I'm just not aware of it. I know that 3rd edition broke out the whole rules of race playable races. They made monsters playable. They just like sort of opened the floodgates. And I think we're still feeling the repercussions of that. <laughs> it was just a little crazy. Uh, tieflings share certain racial traits as a result of their infernal descent. Ability score increase. Your intelligence score increases by 1 and your charisma score increases by 2. Age. Tieflings mature at the same rate as humans, but live a few years longer. Size. Tieflings are about the same size and build as humans. Your size is medium. Speed. Your base walking speed is 30 feet. Dark vision. Thanks to your infernal heritage, you have a superior vision in dark and dim condition. You can see in dim light within 60 feet of you as if it were bright light, and in darkness as if it were dim light. You can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. Hellish resistance. That sounds cool. You have resistance to fire damage. Infernal Legacy. You know the Thaumaturgy Cantrip. When you reach third level, you can cast the Hellish Rebuke spell as a second level spell once this trait, uh, once with this trait, and regain the ability to do so when you finish a long rest. When you reach fifth level, you can cast the Darkness spell once with this trait and regain the ability to do so when you finish a long rest. Charisma is your spellcasting ability for these spells. Languages. You can speak, read, and write common and infernal. All right. So chapter two is done. What's chapter three? Gah! Classes. Adventures are ex <laughs> Adventurers are extraordinary people, driven by a thirst for excitement into a life that others would never dare lead. They are heroes, compelled to explore the dark places of the world and take on the challenges that lesser women and men can't stand against. Class is the primary definition of what your character can do. It's more than a profession. It's your character's calling. Class shapes the way you think about the world and interact with it and your relationship with other people and powers in the multiverse. A fighter, for example, might view the world in pragmatic terms of strategy and maneuvering and see yourself as just a pawn in a much larger game. A cleric, by contrast, might see himself as a willing servant in a god's unfolding plan or a conflict brewing among various deities. While the fighter has contacts in a mercenary company or army, the cleric might know a number of priests, paladins, and devotees who share his faith. 
Your class gives you a variety of special features, such as a fighter's mastery of weapons and armor and a wizard's spells. At low levels, your class gives you only two or three features, but as you advance in level, you gain more and uh, I'm sorry, you gain more of your existing features. What? But as you advance in level, you gain more, and your existing features often improve. Each class entry in this chapter includes a table summarizing the benefits you gain at every level and detailed explanations of each one. Adventures sometimes advance in more than one class. A rogue might switch direction in life and swear the oath of a paladin. A barbarian might discover latent magical ability and dabble in the sorcerer class while continuing to advance as a barbarian. Elves are known to combine martial mastery with magical training and advance as fighters and wizards simultaneously. Optional rules for combining classes in this way, called multi-classing, appear in Chapter 6. Twelve classes listed in the classes table are found in almost every D&D world and define the spectrum of typical adventurers. Class Summary. And you can see the chart here. I'm not going to read it all. Barbarian. A tall human tribesman strides through a blizzard draped in fur and hefting his axe. He laughs as he charges toward the frost giant who dared poach his people's elk herd. A half-orc snarls at the last challenger and her authority over the savage tribe, ready to break his neck with her bare hands as she did the last six rivals. Frothing at the mouth, a dwarf slams his helmet into the face of his drow foe, then turns to drive his armored elbow into the gut of another. These barbarians, different as they might be, are defined by their rage, unbridled, unquenchable, and unthinking fury. More than a mere emotion, their anger is a ferocity of a cornered predator, the, unrelent the unrelenting assault of a storm, the churning turmoil of a sea. For some, their rage springs from a communion with fierce animal spirits. Others draw from a roiling reservoir of anger at a world full of pain. For every barbarian, rage is a power that fuels not just a battle frenzy, but also uncanny reflexes, resilience, and feats of strength. Primal Instinct People of towns and cities take pride in how they, their civilized ways set them apart from animals, as if denying one's own nature was a mark of superiority. To a barbarian, though, civilization is no virtue, but a sign of weakness. The strong embrace their animal nature, keen instincts, primal physicality, and ferocious rage. Barbarians are uncomfortable when hedged in by walls and crowds. They thrive in the wilds of their homelands, the tundra, jungle, or grasslands where their tribes live and hunt. Barbarians come alive in the chaos of combat. They can enter a berserk state when rage takes over, giving them a superhuman strength and resilience. A barbarian can draw on the reservoir of fury only a few times without resting, but those few rages are usually sufficient to defeat whatever threats arise. A life of danger. Not every member of the tribe deemed barbarians by signs of civilized society has the barbarian class. A true barbarian among these people is, an un is as uncommon as a skilled fighter in a town, and he or she plays a similar role as a protector of the people and a leader in times of war. Life in the wild places of the world is fraught with peril, rival tribes, deadly weather, and terrifying monsters. Barbarians charge headlong into the danger so that their people don't have to. Their courage in the face of danger makes barbarians perfectly suited for adventuring. Wandering is often a way of life for their native, native tribes, and the rootless life of the adventure is little hardship 
for a barbarian. Some barbarians miss the close-knit family structures of the tribe, but eventually find them replaced by the bonds formed among the members of their adventuring parties. Creating a Barbarian When creating a barbarian character, think about where your character comes from and his or her place in the world. Talk with your DM and about appropriate origin for your barbarian. Did you come from a distant land, making you a stranger in the area of the campaign? Or is the campaign set in a rough-and-tumble frontier where barbarians are common? What led you to take up the adventuring life? Were you lured to settle lands by the promise of riches? Did you join forces with soldiers of those lands to face a shared threat? Did monsters or an invading horde drive you out of your homeland, making you a rootless refugee? Perhaps you were a prisoner of war, brought in chains to civilized lands and only now able to win your freedom. Or you might have been cast out from your people because of a crime you committed, a taboo you violated, or a coup that removed you from a position of authority. Quick build. You can make a barbarian quickly by following these suggestions. First, put your highest ability score in strength, followed by constitution. Second, choose the outlander background. And these are the abilities that you get at each level. This is what kind of bothers me, to be honest. Um, I always saw leveling up as a result of adventuring. This gives you incentive to level up. And so adventuring becomes the catalyst to level up. It's like backwards from the way I think of it. You're like, oh, I got to get that primal path feature. So I hurry, got to hurry up and get to third level. Let's just go uh, kill a bunch of orcs in a row or something. Rather than saying, hey, let's go on an adventure. And then whatever happens at the end of that happens. You know, you level up or you don't. You get treasure or you don't. It's the adventure that's exciting. Class features. As a Barbarian, you gain the following class features. Hit dice. Hit dice 1 to 12 for Barbarian level. Hit points at first level, 12 plus your Constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels, 1 to 12 or, plus, or 7 plus your Constitution modifier per Barbarian level after first. Proficiencies. Armor, light armor, medium armor, shield. Weapons. Simple weapons. Martial weapons. Tools. None. Saving throws. Strength. Constitution. Skills. Choose two from animal handling. Athletics. Intimidation. Nature. Perception. And survival. So these are like non-weapon proficiencies. The skills. Equipment. You start with the following equipment in addition to the equipment granted by your background. A. A great axe or B. Any martial melee weapon. A. Two hand axes or B. A simple weapon. An explorer's pack and four javelins. In battle, uh, rage. In battle, you fight with primal ferocity. On your turn, you can enter a rage as a bonus action. While raging, you gain the following benefits if you aren't wearing heavy armor. You have advantage in strength checks and strength saving throws. When you make a melee weapon attack using strength, you gain a bonus to the damage roll that increases as you gain levels as a barbarian, as shown in the rage damage column of the barbarian table. You have resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. If you're able to cast spells, you can't cast them or concentrate on them while raging. Your rage lasts for one minute. It ends early if you're knocked unconscious or if your turn ends and you haven't attacked a hostile creature since your last turn or taken damage since then. You can also end your rage on your turn as a bonus action. Once you have raged the number of times shown for your barbarian level in the rages column on the barbarian table, you wow. uh, you must finish a long rest before you can rage again. Unarmored defense. While you're not wearing any armor, your armor class equals 10 plus your dex modifier plus your constitution modifier. Oh, wow. You can use a shield and still gain this benefit. Reckless attack. 
Starting a second level, you can throw aside all concern for defense to attack with fierce desperation. When you make your first attack on your turn, you can decide to attack recklessly. Doing so gives you advantage on melee weapon attack rolls using strength during this turn, but attack rolls against you have advantage until your next turn. Danger Sense At second level, you gain an uncanny sense of when things nearby aren't as they should be, giving you an edge when you dodge away from danger. You have advantage on dexterity saving throws against effects that you can see, such as traps and spells. To gain this benefit, you can't be blinded, deafened, or incapacitated. Primal Path At third level, you choose a path that shapes the nature of your rage. Choose the path of the Berserker or the path of the Totem Warrior, both detailed at the end of this class description. Your choice grants you features at third level and again at sixth, tenth, and fourteenth levels. Ability Score Improvement When you reach fourth level and again at eighth, twelfth, sixteenth, and nineteenth level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by two, or you can increase two ability scores of your choice by one. As normal, you can't increase an ability score above 20. 20? 20! 20 is the... What the hell? Okay, this is totally different. I've never played a version of D&D where you get a boost up your stat scores upon reaching a level. That's crazy. And to have 20 be your max seems really high. So you just run around with 19th level people. Everyone's got 20 stats. Is that like the normal thing? What the hell? That's crazy. Extra attack. Beginning at 5th level, you can attack twice instead of once. Whenever you take the attack action on your turn. Fast movement. Uh, starting at 5th level, your speed increases by 10 feet while you aren't wearing heavy armor. Feral Instinct By 7th level, your instincts are so honed that you have advantage on initiative rolls. Additionally, if you're surprised at the beginning of combat and aren't incapacitated, you can act normally on your first turn, but only if you enter your rage before doing anything else on that turn. Brutal Critical Beginning at 9th level, you can roll one additional weapon damage die when determining the extra damage for a critical hit with a melee attack. This increases to two additional dice at 13th level and three additional dice at 17th. Whoa! That's crazy. Plus the extra one that you get just for being a barbarian. And if you're critting, you get an extra one after that. That's, that's awesome. Relentless Rage. Starting at 11th, your rage can keep you fighting Despite grievous wounds, if you drop to zero hit points while you're raging and don't die outright, you can make a DC Constitution saving throw. If you succeed, you drop to one hit point instead. Well, that's cool. Each time you use this feature after the first, the DC increases by five. When you finish a short or long rest, the DC resets to ten. Persistent Rage Beginning at 15th level, your rage is so fierce that it ends early only if you fall unconscious or if you choose to end it. Wait, what? Beginning at 15th level, your rage is so fierce that it ends early only if you fall in Isn't that how it normally ends anyway? You choose to end it? Hmm, I'm confused. Indomitable Might. Beginning at 18th level, if your total for a strength check is less than your strength score, you can use that score in place of the total. Oh, that's cool. Primal Champion. At 20th level, you embody the power of the wilds. Your strength and constitution scores increase by 4. Whoa! <laughs> oh my gosh! Your maximum for these scores is now 24. Holy shnikey. That is a strong dwarven barbarian. 
Rage burns in every barbarian's heart, a furnace that drives him or her towards greatness. Different barbarians attribute their rage to different sources, however. For some, it's an internal reservoir where pain, grief, and anger are forged into a fury hard as steel. Others see it as spiritual blessing, a gift of a totem animal. This really does feel like superpower stuff. Like all of this. This is so... Again, I'm, I'm used to older Dungeons & Dragons. This game, you advance so quick with ability scores, with different ability options, and like just shake off death as if it wasn't even really, you know, hovering over your head. It just seems like uh, you're just superheroes running around. And that's awesome. Like playing superheroes is awesome, but I always thought of Dungeons and Dragons as, you know, just above normal people in their sort of power. And it was really their cunning and their skills that allowed them to survive, not their superhuman might. Path of the Berserker. For some barbarians, rage is a means to an end. That end, big violence. The Path of Berserker is a path of untrammeled fury, slick with blood. As you enter the Berserker rage, you thrill in the chaos of battle, heedless of your own health or well-being. Frenzy. Starting when you choose this path at third level, you can go into a frenzy when you rage. If you do so for the duration of your rage, you can make a single melee attack as a bonus action on each of your turns after this one. When your rage ends, you suffer one level of exhaustion. Oh, okay, that's cool. Rage normally lasts one minute, and you must actively be damaging or be damaged before 15th level. Okay, thanks, Savage. Hey, I appreciate you guys um, filling me in on the like my misconceptions or ignorance uh, throughout the course of this. It actually helps me contextualize these rules, and uh, you know, it just ultimately makes me understand them better. So, thank you. Um, mindless Rage. Beginning at 6th level, you can't be charmed or frightened while raging. If you are charmed or frightened when you enter your rage, the effect is suspended for the duration of the rage. Intimidating Presence. Beginning at 10th level, you can use your action to frighten someone with your menacing presence. When you do so, choose one creature that you can see within 30 feet of you. If the creature can see or hear you, it must succeed on a wisdom saving throw, DC equal to 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your charisma modifier, or be frightened of you until the end of your next turn. On subsequent turns, you can use your action to extend the duration of this effect on the frightened creature until the end of your next turn. This effect ends if the creature ends its turn out of line of sight or more than 60 feet away from you. If the creature succeeds on a saving throw, you can't use this feature on that creature again for 24 hours. Retaliation. Starting at 14th level, you can take damage from a creature that is within 5 feet of you. You can use your reaction to make a melee weapon attack against this creature. We're actually missing one of these. They said there was two paths. Where's the totem path? Okay, so they don't actually give you everything for free here. They're just giving you samplings. Okay, that makes more sense. Bard. Humming as she traces her fingers over an ancient monument in a long-forgotten ruin, a half-elf in rugged leathers finds knowledge springing into her mind, conjured forth by the magic of her song. Knowledge of the people who construct the monument and the mythic saga it depicts. A stern human warrior bangs his sword rhythmically against his scale mail, setting the tempo for his war chant and exorating uh, his companions to bravery and heroism. The magic of his song fortifies and emboldens them. Laughing as she tunes her cittern, cittern 
A gnome weaves her subtle magic over the assembled nobles, ensuring that her companion's words will be well received. Whether scholar, scald, or scoundrel, a bard weaves magic through words and music to inspire allies, demoralize foes, manipulate minds, create illusions, and even heal wounds. Music and magic. In the worlds of Dungeons & Dragons, words and music are not just vibrations of air, but vocalizations with power all their own. The bard is a master of song, speech, and the magic they contain. Bards say that the multiverse was spoken into existence, that the words of the gods gave it shape, and that echoes of these primordial words of creation still resound throughout the cosmos. The music of bards is an attempt to snatch and harness those echoes, suddenly woven into the spells and powers. The greatest strength of bards is their sheer versatility. Many bards prefer to stick to the sidelines in combat, using their magic to inspire their allies and hinder their foes from a distance. But bards are capable of defending themselves in melee if necessary, using their magic to bolster their swords and armor. Their spells lean towards charms and illusions rather than blatantly destructive spells. They have a wide-ranging knowledge of many subjects and a natural aptitude that lets them do almost anything well. Bards become masters of the talents they set their minds to perfecting, from musical performance to esoteric knowledge. Learning from experience. True bards are not common in the world. Not every minstrel singing in a tavern or jester convorting in a royal court is a bard. Discovering the magic hidden in music requires hard study and some measure of natural talent that most troubadours and jongleurs lack. It can be hard to spot the difference between those performers and true bards, though. A bard's life is spent wandering across the land, gathering lore, telling stories, and living on the gratitude of audiences, much like any other entertainer. But a depth of knowledge, a level of musical skill, and a touch of magic sets bards apart from their fellows. Only rarely do bards settle in one place for long. Their natural desire to travel, to find new tales to tell, new skills to learn, and new discoveries beyond the horizon makes an adventuring career a natural calling. Every adventure is an opportunity to learn, practice a variety of skills, enter long-forgotten tombs, discover lost works of magic, decipher old tomes, travel to strange places, or encounter exotic creatures. Bards love to accompany heroes to witness their deeds firsthand. A bard who can tell an awe-inspiring story from personal experiences earns renown among other bards. Indeed, after telling so many stories about heroes accomplishing mighty deeds, many bards take these themes to heart and assume heroic roles themselves. You know, when I first think of bard, I think of Fluterflam. Do any of you know who that is? Creating a bard. Bards thrive on stories, whether those stories are true or not. Your character's background and motivations are not as important as the stories that he or she tells about them. Perhaps you had a secure and mundane childhood. There's no good story to be told about that. So you might paint yourself as an orphan raised by a hag in a dismal swamp. Or your childhood might be worthy of story. Some bards acquire their magic music through extraordinary means, including the inspiration of fae or other supernatural creatures. Did you serve an apprenticeship, studying under a master, following the more experienced bard until you're ready to strike out on your own? Or did you attend a college where you studied bardic lore and practiced your musical magic? Perhaps you were a young runaway or orphan, befriended by a wandering bard who became your mentor. Or you might have been a spoiled noble child, tutored by a master. Perhaps you stumbled into the clutches of a hag, making a bargain of a musical gift in addition to your life and freedom. But at what cost? 
Quick Build. You can make a bard quickly by following these suggestions. First, Charisma should be your highest ability score, followed by Dexterity. Second, choose the Entertainer background. Third, third, choose the Dancing Lights and Vicious Mockery cantrips, along with the following first level spells. Charm Person, Detect Magic, Healing Word, and Thunder Wave. Thunder! So you see the uh, spell slots listing here. and I remember, Do you guys remember bards? You had to become... What was it? It was like a fighter and then a rogue. And I think then you could take bard in uh, AD&D. Like it took a long time for you to actually finally decide I'm going to be a bard. And of course you had to survive that long. Class features. As a bard, you gain the following class features. Hit dice. 1d8 per bard level. Hit points at first level. 8 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels. 1d8 or 5 plus your constitution modifier per bard level after first. Proficiencies. Light armor. Weapons. Simple weapons. Hand crossbows. Longbows. Rapiers. Short swords. Tools. Three musical instruments of your choice. Saving throws. Dexterity. Charisma. Skills. Choose any three. Equipment. You start with the following equipment in addition to the equipment granted by your background. A, rapier, B, longsword, C, simple weapon. A, diplomat's pack, or B, entertainer's pack. A, lute, B, other music instrument, leather armor, and a dagger. This, rem this section right here reminds me of, in Unearthed Arcana and AD&D, uh, Cavaliers. They had like a starting equipment set. And I'm just going off memory, but I don't think any of the other classes had any starting equipment. I thought that was, that was interesting. And they also... Uh, in, like introduce barbarians for the first time i think spellcasting you've learned to untangle and reshape the fabric of reality and harmony with your wishes and music your spells are part of your vast repertoire magic that you can tune to different situations see chapter 10 for the general rules of spellcasting and chapter 11 for the bard spell list cantrips you know two cantrips of your choice from the bard spell list you learn additional bard cantrips of your choice at higher levels as shown in the cantrips known column on the bard table Let's see. Spell slots. The bard table shows how many spell slots you have to cast your bard spells of first level, uh, first level and higher. To cast one of those spells, you must expend a slot of the spell's level or higher. You regain all extended spell slots when you finish a long rest. For example, if you know the first level spell Cure Wounds and have a first level and second level spell slot available, you can cast Cure Wounds using either slot. Slot. So you don't, you don't memorize spells in this? You just, like, whatever you know, you could just cast at any point as long as it fits the slot? That confuses me. Okay. Spells known of first level and higher. You know four first level spells of your choice from the bard spell list. The spells known column of the bard table shows when you learn more bard spells of your choice. Each of these spells must be of a level of which you have spell slots as shown on the table. For instance, when you reach third level in this class, you can learn one new spell of first or second level. Additionally, when you gain a level in this class, you can choose one of the bard spells you know and replace it with any other spell from the bard spell list, which also must be of a level for which you have spell slots. Okay, so... I've, I've actually read the, the player handbook. I finished it today. And I don't recall it ever mentioning where you get spells from. Like, in like older D&D, &D, you had to find spells and then scribe them in your spell book. 
when you got a new level and you could cast new level spells, you had to find those spells to learn them. You couldn't just think of it from a list and then it pops in your brain. So is that how this works? Where you, you just, as a player, just run your finger down a list and choose a spell saying, I now know this spell without any role-playing at all involved? That, I don't know. Like, that's part of the reason why a, a magic user would ever join an adventuring group. Like, Raceland, for example, he would never have backed the play to go to Zach Saroth if he didn't know Fist and Daedalus' spellbook was there. That was the only reason why he agreed to go. That was it. So, like, if you're... Like, that doesn't make sense. All right. I have a problem with that. Spellcasting ability. Charisma is your spellcasting... Charisma is your spellcasting ability. I guess that makes sense. That just seems strange. Your magic comes from the heart and soul you pour into the performance of your music or oration. You use your charisma... Whether a spell refers to your spellcasting ability, in addition, you use your Charisma modifier when setting the saving throw DC for a bard spell you cast, and when making an attack roll with one. So in new additions, you just get them at the level. It's a bit of an oversight. Now for wizards, they get a small amount of free spells, but you can get more the old way. Okay, so you still can, like, scribe spells if you found it in a scroll to your spellbook if you didn't already know it. And then you would then know that spell, right? I mean, that was... That was the whole purpose of a magic user, was to amass your your armory of, of spells. And then, you know, once you memorize them for whatever you're going to be doing in that day, you're like unholy terror to everyone <laughs> at high levels, not at low levels. At low levels, you're hiding behind trees. All right, spellcasting ability. Charisma is your spellcasting ability. Um, Oh, I already said that. Spell DC 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus charisma modifier. Spell attack modifier, your proficiency bonus plus your charisma modifier. Ritual casting. You can cast any bard spell you know as a ritual if the spell has a ritual tag. What, what does that mean, ritual? Like, I know what a ritual is, but I've never heard of spells referred to as rituals before. Spellcasting focus. There's not even like a learn more here button, like equipment. Spellcasting focus. You can use a musical instrument, see chapter 5 equipment, as a spellcasting focus for your bard spells. Bardic inspiration. You can inspire others through stirring words or music. To do so, you use a bonus action on your turn to choose one creature other than yourself within 60 feet of you who can hear. That creature gains a bardic inspiration die, a d6. Once within the next 10 minutes, the creature can roll a die and add the number rolled to one ability check, attack roll, or saving throw it makes. The creature can wait until after it rolls the d20 before decide. That's awesome! Before deciding to use the bardic inspiration die, but must decide before the DM says whether the roll succeeds or fails. Once the Bardic Inspiration die is rolled, it's lost. A creature can have only one Bardic Inspiration die at a time. You can use this feature a number of times equal to your Charisma modifier, a minimum of once. You regain any expended uses when you finish a long rest. Your Bardic Inspiration die changes when you reach certain levels in this class. The die becomes a D8 at 5th, D10 at 10th, and D12 at 15th. That's cool. I like that a lot. Uh, jack of all trades. Starting at second level, you can add half your proficiency bonus rounded down to any ability check you make that doesn't already include your proficiency bonus. Song of Rest. Beginning at second level, you can use soothing music or oration to help revitalize your wounded allies during a short rest. If you or any friendly creature who can hear your performance regain hit points at the end of a short rest by spending one or more hit die, 
each of those creatures regains an extra 1d6 hit points. The extra hit points increase when you reach certain levels in this class to 1d8 at 9th, 1d10 at 13th, and 1d12 at 17th. Bard College. At third level, you delve into the advanced techniques of a bard college of your choice, the College of Lore or the College of Valor, both detailed at the end of the class description. Your choice grants you features at third level and again at sixth and fourteenth level. Expertise. At third level, choose two of your skill proficiencies. Your proficiency bonus is doubled for any ability check you make that uses either of those chosen proficiencies. At tenth level, you can choose another two skill proficiencies to gain this benefit. Ability score improvement. When you reach 4th level, and again at 8th, 12th, 16th, and 19th level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by two, or you can increase two ability scores of your choice by one. As normal, you can't increase an ability score above 20 using this feature. Font of Inspiration. Beginning when you reach 5th level, you regain all of your expended uses of Bardic Inspiration when you finish a short or long rest. Counter Charm. At 6th level, you gain the ability to use musical notes or words of power to disrupt mind-influencing effects. As an action, you can start a performance that lasts until the end of your next turn. During that time, you and any friendly creatures within 30 feet of you have advantage on saving throws against being frightened or charmed. A creature must be able to hear you to gain this benefit. The performance ends early if you're incapacitated or silenced, or if you voluntarily end it, no action required. Magical Secrets by 10th level, you have plundered magical knowledge from a wide spectrum of disciplines. Choose two spells from any classes, oh man, including this one. A spell you choose must be of a level you can cast, as shown on the bard table or a cantrip. The chosen spell counts as bard spells for you and are included in the number of spells known column of the bard table. You learn two additional spells from any classes at 14th level and again at 18th. Superior Inspiration at 20th level, when you roll initiative and have no uses of bardic inspiration left, you regain one use. Bard Colleges. How many people actually play to 20th level? Wasn't there a study done in like the average is 6th level before campaigns break up? I've had one old AD&D AD &D 20th level paladin and there was nothing to do. Like none, like it was just me. It just sucks. That's like, you have to like travel the plains and kill gods at 20th level. Bard Colleges. The way of a bard is gregarious. Bards seek each other out to swap songs and stories, boast of their accomplishments, and share their knowledge. Bards form loose associations, which they call colleges, to facilitate their gatherings and preserve their traditions. College of Lore. Bards of the College of Lore know something about make I'm sorry, know something about most things, collecting bits of knowledge from sources as diverse as scholarly tomes and peasant tales. Whether singing folk ballads in taverns or elaborate compositions in royal courts, these bards use their gifts to hold audiences spellbound. When the applause dies down, the audience members might find themselves questioning everything they held to be true, from their faith in the priesthood to the local temple to their loyalty to the king. That's awesome. The loyalty of these bards lies in the pursuit of beauty and truth, not in fealty to a monarch or following the tenets of a deity. A noble who keeps such a bard as a herald or advisor knows that the bard would rather be honest than politic. The college's members gather in libraries and sometimes in actual colleges, complete with classrooms and dormitories to share their lore with one another. This is just a frat house. That's what this is. Let's do, they're, they're pretending it's something greater by calling it a college of lore, but really it's just a dorm room. Bunch of dudes smoking weed in the corner and 
You got a dude hitting on a girl in the other room. Like that's that's all this is. Beer pong at the end of the hall. All right, let's see. <laughs> the gathering they um libraries sometimes actual colleges clue class and door share their lore with another. They also meet at festivals or Affairs of state where they can expose corruption, unravel lies, and poke fun at a self-important figures of authority. Bonus proficiencies. When you join the College of Lore at third level, you gain proficiency with three skills of your choice. Cutting words. Also at third level, you learn how to use your wit to distract, confuse, and otherwise sap the confidence and competence of others. When a creature that you can see within 60 feet of you makes an attack roll, an ability check, or a damage roll, you can use your reaction to expend one of your uses of Bardic Inspiration, rolling a Bardic Inspiration die, and subtracting the number rolled from the creature's roll. You can choose to use this feature after the creature makes its roll, but before the DM determines whether the attack roll or ability check succeeds or fails, or before the creature deals its damage. The creature is immune if it can't hear you, or if it's immune to being charmed. Uh, I just want to do a quick note about these, what are these, subclasses? Uh, sub, it's got to be like a subclass, right? College of Lore. Um, Barbarian had one too, and, I, and every single class has them, you know, varying numbers of them. But it's at third level, right? But I never have read anywhere where it says you should roleplay some sort of meaningful moment uh, that you then go into this. It's, instead, they're just saying, here, pick it from a list and move on. But in Dragonlance, if you get to third level and you want to advance as a wizard, you have to take a test of high sorcery. Why not extend that out to these other classes? Why not make, if you choose the College of Lore as a bard, you have to seek out members and, and go through rites, you know, like uh, a regular frat house would do, in order to, or, you know, some sort of, uh, exam in order to enter the college like role play it out so it's a fun experience and you feel like you really went through this sort of um uh this evolution in your character rather than just saying all right you're third level where are you gonna go from here like make it important role play that shit cut it i, I distinctly I, I used to play saga star wars and anytime you wanted to be like a jedi knight that was a huge deal like you had to like run through all these wonderful role-playing mechanics and challenges and stuff. It, it was very much like a uh, test of high sorcery where you just have to go through these certain steps and stuff, but it's so much fun. And if you don't suggest it at this point of, you know, character creation and character advancement from a game mechanic standpoint, it's not a mandate or anything, play however you want. But if you don't suggest it, then it's not in the forefront of the DM's mind or the player's mind of wanting to have that moment of excitement. And, that stuff like that like really gets in you gets you into your character it helps you develop you know personality traits and and uh, aversions to different things or, you know like passions like that stuff is really important and fun like i always used to do when i'm sorry i, I know i'm not reading this i'll get to this in one second uh when i used to run um uh, Dungeons and dragons games a lot I would do uh, the regular character generation session where, you know, you just sort of talk through role playing of how you came to be whatever it is you are. And then after playing with everyone together, um, I would go back and do a sort of like a, a prequel quest, you know, like what, whatever we talked about in the character creation process, I formatted into a version of a, a game and, you know, a, a session 
of uh, D&D. And then we'd run through that session. It's not like you would die in it or anything, but from a role-playing mechanic, it really helped you get into the into the skin of your character, or at least I would like to think that it did. Maybe my players hated it and they're just going along because they wanted to play the stupid game. Um, I always love that stuff. Immersion is so important when you're talking about your character, you know? Because ultimately, if you're just playing the same type of character, no matter what character you're actually playing, if you just, you know, don't really get into it, then what's the point? Like, it just doesn't... It's role-playing game. Do it. <laughs> Cutting words. Also at third level, you learn how to use your wit to distract, confuse, and otherwise sap the confidence and competence. I already read that. Another magical secrets at sixth level. Wait, what? No, this is the... That's the exact same language. When a creature that you see within 60 feet of you makes an attack roll, an ability check, or a damage roll, you can use your reaction to expend one of your bardic inspiration. Rolling a bardic inspiration die. Or being charmed. I did read that. Additional magical secrets. At sixth level, you learn two spells of your choice from any class. A spell you choose must be a level you cast, as shown in the Bardic Table or a cantrip. A chosen spell counts as bard spells for you, but don't count against the number of bard spells you know. Peerless skill. Starting at 14th level, when you make an ability check, you can expend one of your bardic inspiration. Roll a bardic inspiration die and add the number rolled to your ability check. You can choose to do so after you roll the die for the ability check, but before the DM tells you whether you succeed or fail. Cleric. Arms and eyes upraised toward the sun and a prayer on his lips. An elf begins to glow with an inner light that spills out to heal his battle-worn companions. Chanting a song of glory, a dwarf swings his axe in wide swaths to cut through the ranks of orcs arrayed against him, shouting praise to the god with every foe's fall. Calling down a curse upon the forces of undeath, a human lifts her holy symbol as light pours from it to drive back the zombies crowding in on her companions. Clerics are intermediaries between the mortal world and the distant planes of the gods. As varied as the gods they serve, clerics strive to embody the handiwork of their deities. No ordinary priest, a cleric is imbued with divine magic. Healers and warriors. Divine, you know, this is another... <laughs> I know I'm just jumping around here. This is another thing that um, I didn't get out of the player's handbook. Was consequences of not playing to your alignment like if you're a cleric you have to adhere to your god's like divinities like right like whatever you know alignment that god is if you stray from that then they no longer are going to support you is that still a thing uh because i didn't find it healers and warriors divine magic as the name suggests is the power of the gods flowing from them into the world Clerics are conduits for that power, manifesting it as miraculous effects. The gods don't grant this power to everyone who seeks it, but only to those chosen to fulfill a high calling. Oh, okay. Thanks, Matt. Uh, harness divine magic doesn't rely on study or training. A cleric might learn formulaic prayers or, and ancient rites, but the ability to cast cleric spells relies on devotion and an intuitive sense of the deity's wishes. Clerics combine the helpful magic of healing and inspiring their allies with spells that harm and hinder foes. They can provoke awe and dread, lay curses of plague or poison, and even call down flames from heaven to consume their enemies. For those evildoers who will benefit most from a mace to the head, <laughs> what? Clerics depend on the combat training to let them wade into melee with the power of the gods on their side. <laughs> For those evildoers who will benefit most from a mace to the head. That's awesome. 
Divine agents, not every acolyte or officiant at a temple or shrine is a cleric. Some priests are called to a simple life of temple service, carrying out their gods' will through prayer and sacrifice, not by magic and strength of arms. <clears throat> In some cities, priesthood amounts to a political office viewed as a stepping stone to higher positions of authority involving no communion with a god at all. True clerics are rare in most hierarchies. When a cleric takes up an adventuring life, it's usually because his or her god demands it. Pursuing the goals of the gods often involves braving dangers beyond the walls of civilization, smiting evil, or seeking holy relics in ancient tomes. Many clerics also expect to protect their deities' worshippers, which can mean fighting rampaging orcs, negotiating peace between warring nations, or sealing a portal that would allow a daemon prince to enter the world. Most adventuring clerics maintain some connection to established temples and orders of their faith. A temple might ask for a cleric's aid, or a high priest might be in a position to demand it. This is making me want to play the game. Creating a cleric. As you create a cleric, the most important question to consider is which deity to serve and what principles you want your character to embody. Appendix B. Includes many of the gods of the multiverse. Check with your DM to learn which deities are in your campaign. Once you've chosen a camp, uh, I'm sorry. Once you've chosen a deity, consider your cleric's relationship to that god. Did you enter this service willingly? Willingly? What are you, a slave to the god? Or did the god choose you, impelling you into service with no regard for your wishes? How do the temple priests of your faith regard you as a champion or a troublemaker? What are your ultimate goals? Does your deity have a special task in mind for you, or are you striving to prove yourself worthy of a great quest? Quick build. You can make a cleric quickly by following these suggestions. First, wisdom should be your highest ability score, followed by strength or constitution. Second, choose the acolyte background. And here's the uh, level advancement and everything. <clears throat> so cantrips aren't just like arcane casters. That's interesting. Class feat. As a cleric, you gain the following class features. Hit points. Hit dice, 1d8 per cleric level. Hit points at first level, 8 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels, 1d8 or 5 plus your constitution modifier per cleric level after first. Proficiencies. Light armor, medium armor, shields. Weapons. Simple weapons. Tools. None. Saving throws. Wisdom, charisma. Skills. Choose two from history, insight, medicine, persuasion, and religion. How many different skills are there? Is it like the second edition and third edition non-playing proficiencies with like this huge monstrous list? Equipment. You start with the following equipment in addition to the equipment granted by your background. A, a mace or B, a warhammer proficient. A, scale mail, B, leather armor, or C, chain mail proficient. A, a light crossbow and 20 bolts or B, any simple weapon. A, a priest pack or B, an explorer's pack. A shield and a holy symbol. Spellcasting. As a conduit for divine power, you can cast cleric spells. See chapter 10 for the general rules of spellcasting and chapter 11 for the cleric spell list. Cantrips. At first level, you know three cantrips of your choice from the cleric spell list. You learn additional... Oh, okay, so they are separated. You learn additional cleric cantrips of your choice at higher levels as shown in the cantrips known column of the cleric table. 18 skills. Preparing and casting spells. The cleric table shows how many spell slots you have to cast your cleric spell of first level and higher. To cast one of these spells, you must extend a slot, uh, a spell's level or higher. You regain all expended, this is the exact same language as the other one, all expended spell slots when you finish a long rest. You prepare the list of cleric spells that are available for you to cast, choosing from the cleric spell list. You prepare the list of cleric spells that are available for you to cast. 
all right, now I'm really confused because they were saying that if you had already used your first level spell, you could cast it again in a second level slot. So you still have to prepare specific spells or you just get to use whatever your god tells you that you have. Like, this is a little bit confusing to me on, on the whole memorizing spells or preparing spells versus casting spells. When you do so, choose a number of cleric spells equal to your wisdom modifier plus your cleric level minimum of one spell. The spells must... And I did read that chapter too on spell casting. So that's why I'm a little bit... I, like, I don't quite understand. If you can just cast spells without having to memorize them, why do you need to wait for a long rest? Hold on a second. So this says you know two spells, so then do you have to prepare two spells at your long rest, and then you only have to use... Well, you can use the first one twice if... You use a second level slot if you're third level, for example. So then you lose your second level spell, or is it still prepared? Like, what's the point of preparing versus knowing for a cleric? That's what I'm confused about. Um, you can change your list of prepared spells when you finish a long rest. Preparing a new list of cleric spells requires time spent in prayer and meditation. At least one minute per spell level for each spell on your list. Spellcasting ability. Wisdom is your spellcasting ability for your cleric spells. The power of your spells comes from your devotion to your deity. You choose your wisdom. Uh, you use your wisdom whenever a cleric spell refers to your spellcasting ability. In addition, you use your wisdom modifier when setting that spell throw, I'm sorry, that saving throw DC for a cleric spell you cast and when making an attack roll with one. I'm starting to get tongue-tied here after an hour and a half. Spell save DC 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. Spell attack modifier, your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. Ritual casting. You can cast a cleric spell as a ritual if that spell has the ritual tag and you have the spell prepared. So what's the benefit of casting it as a ritual or not? I guess it depends by the spell, but like that would be, you know, the, there has to be a benefit of doing that. Otherwise, there shouldn't be a ritual option. Spellcasting focus. You can use a holy symbol, see chapter 5 equipment, as a spellcasting focus for your cleric spells. Um, hey Ethan, uh, you're a blind dungeon master specializing in Dragonlance. Would you be willing to put up a dungeon master's guy to run the new Dragonlance adventure? You know, it would help you. Um, Ethan, I'm actually going to be running that new adventure in december i have players lined up for it and as soon as i get the the materials i'm gonna study and we're gonna knock it out it's gonna be fun so tune in okay divine domain choose one domain related to your deity knowledge life light nature tempest trickery or war each domain is detailed at the end of the class description and each one provides examples of gods associated with it your choice grants you domain spells and other features when you choose it at first level. It also grants you additional ways to use channel divinity when you gain that feature at second level and additional benefits at sixth, eighth, and seventeenth levels. Domain spells. Each domain has a list of spells, its domain spells, that you can at the cleric's levels noted in the domain description that you gain at the cleric level. Okay. 
Once you gain a domain spell, you always have it prepared, and it doesn't count against the number of spells that you can prepare each day. If you have a domain spell that doesn't appear on the cleric spell list, the spell is nonetheless a cleric spell for you. What? Okay. Channel Divinity. At second level, you gain the ability to channel divin uh, divine energy directly from your deity using the energy to fuel magical effects. You start with two such uh, effects, turn undead and an effect determined by your domain. Some domains grant you additional effects as you advance in levels, as noted in the domain description. When you use your channel divinity, you choose which effect to create. You must then finish a short or long rest to use your channel divinity again. Some channel divinity effects require saving throws. When you use such an effect from this class, the DC equals your cleric spell save DC. Beginning at 6th level, you can use your channel divinity twice between rests, and beginning at 18th level, you can use it three times between rests. When you finish a short or long rest, you regain your expended uses. Channel divinity, turn undead. As an action, you present your holy symbol and speak a prayer censoring... Um, Censoring the undead. Censoring? Huh. Each undead that can see or hear you within 30 feet of you must make a wisdom saving throw. If the creature fails at saving throw, it is turned for one minute or until it takes any damage. A turned creature must spend its turn trying to move as far away from you as it can, and it can't willingly move to a space within 30 feet of you. It also can't take reactions for its action. It can only use the dash action or try to escape from an effect that prevents it from moving. If there's nowhere to move, the creature can use the dodge action. But a zombie doing a dodge action? All right, what happened to the destroying undead? Like it was, it was turn or like do damage, right? It's turn for a minute or until it takes any damage. Yes, you don't do any damage to it. You're just showing it a, like a picture of its mom naked and it's running away. <laughs> what? All right. Oh, destroying his letter? Cool. Okay. Ability score improvement. When you reach 4th level and again at 8th, 12th, 16th, and 19th level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by two, or you can increase two ability scores of your choice by one. As normal, you can't increase an ability score above 20 using this feature. Destroy... Oh, duh. There it is. Destroy undead. Starting at 5th level with an undead fail... When an undead fails its saving throw against your turn undead feature, the creature is instantly destroyed. Yeah! If its challenge rating is at or below a certain threshold, as shown in the destroy undead table. Oh, yeah! That's what I'm talking about. Gotta bust those bones apart. Divine Intervention. Beginning at 10th level, you can call on your de deity to intervene on your behalf when your need is great. Imploring your deity's aid requires you to use your action. Describe the assistance you seek and roll a percentile dice. If you roll a number equal to or lower than your cleric level, your deity intervenes. The DM chooses the nature of the intervention. The effect of any cleric spell or cleric domain spell will be appropriate. If your deity intervenes, you can't use this feature again for seven days. Otherwise, you can use it again after you finish a long rest. At 20th level, your call for intervention succeeds automatically. No roll required. Yeah, I'd hope so after 20 levels. Divine domains. In a pantheon, every deity has influence over different aspects of mortal life and civilization called a deity's domain. All the domains over which a deity has influence are called the deity's portfolio. For example, a portfolio of a Greek god Apollo includes the domains of knowledge, life, and light. 
As a cleric, you choose one aspect of your deity's portfolio to emphasize, and you're granted powers related to that domain. You choose, uh, your choice might correspond to a particular sect dedicated to your deity. Apollo, for example, would, could be worshipped in one religion as Phobos, or Phobos, radiant Apollo, emphasizing his influence over the light domain in a different place as Apollo Aceus, healing, emphasizing his association with the life domain. Alternatively, your choice of domains could simply be a matter of personal preference, the aspect of the deity that appeals to you most. Each domain's description gives examples of deities who have influence over that domain. Gods are included from the worlds of the Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, Dragonlands, and Ebron campaign settings, as well as from the Greek, uh, Celtic, Greek, Norse, and Egyptian pantheons of antiquity. Nice. No Sumerians, huh? Gotta snub Sumerians. Life Domain. The life domain focuses on the vibrant, positive energy, one of the fundamental forces of the universe that sustains all life. The gods of life promote vitality and health through healing the sick and wounded, caring for those in need, and driving away the forces of death and undeath. Almost any non-evil deity can claim influence over this domain, particularly agriculture deities such as Shanti, Arwai, and Demeter. Such gods such as Lathander, Pelor, and, oh boy, Rehorakti, gods of healing or endurance such as Ilmater, Mishakal, Apollo, and Dianect, Dianesect, and gods of home and community such as Hestia, Hathor, and Boldre. Life domain spells, it shows you the different spells associated. Bonus proficiency. When you choose this domain at first level, you gain proficiency with heavy armor, discipline of life. Also, starting at first level, your healing spells are more effective. Whether you use a spell of first level or higher to restore hit points to a creature, the creature regains additional hit points equal to 2 plus the spell's level. Channel Divinity, preserve life. Starting at second level, you can use your uh, Channel Divinity to heal the badly injured. As an action, you present your holy symbol and evoke healing energy that can restore a number of hit points equal to 5 times your cleric level. Choose any creatures within 30 feet of you and divide those hit points among them. This feature can restore a creature to no more than half of its hit point maximum. You can't use this feature on an undead or a construct. Blessed Healer. Beginning at 6th level, the healing spells you cast on others heal you as well. When you cast a spell of 1st level or higher that restores hit points to a creature other than you, you regain hit points equal to 2 plus the spell's level. That's awesome. Divine Strike. At 8th level, you gain the ability to infuse your weapon strike with divine energy. Once on each of your turns when you hit a creature with a weapon attack, you can cause the attack to deal an extra 1d8 radiant damage to the target. When you reach 14th level, the extra damage increases to 2d8. Supreme Healing. Starting at 17th level, when you would normally roll one or more dice to restore hit points with a spell, you instead use the highest number possible for each die. For example, instead of restoring 2d6 hit points to a creature, you restore 12. That's dope! I like that a lot. Do the Knights of Salamnia have progress through orders literally, like crown, then sword, then rose, because it looks like 5e stuff lets you go from squire to the order of the rose? Um, you have to get to a certain level, and then if you want, you can petition to go into a different order. So you always start at crown, up into a certain level, and then you can petition for the sword, and then you can go up in the sword, and then you can petition to the um, rose, but according to you know old campaign lore, if you were not 
from a noble family, you could not go to the Rose line. Um, and you have heroes like uh, Huma Dragonbane and Stern Brightblade who were just crown knights. They were not, you know, anything higher than that. So, you know, y y we typically think of the different orders as a progressionary, like you're not a, a perfect Knight of Salamnia unless you're a, you know, Knight of the Rose at the highest level you can get. But the truth is, is each order has its own uses in war and um, they use them differently depending on the encounter engagement that they're going into. So it's very similar the way I perceive it, and though this may not transfer exactly, but, you know, uh, I was in the U.S. Army, so that would be one. Uh, Marines would be another. And then, um, uh, you know, the Navy or, or maybe the Air Force would be another order of the military, which is the Salamnic Knights. Another way of thinking of it are like elite units within a force. Uh, so whether it's the Green Berets or, or something like that in the army, you know, airborne rangers, you know, those might be considered different orders as well that you have to sort of petition to. And then once you get in, you can sort of advance. I'll let you skip crown and sword and go right to the Order of the Rose. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not okay with that. Uh, I'm actually going to stop there. I'm going to just over an hour and a half and my, I'm starting to like slur my words and stuff. So it's getting a little bit too difficult to read this late at night. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really appreciate the context that you guys uh, are giving to my re <laughs> reactions. You know, a lot of this is feigned reactions because it's the reactions I had when I first read it. But I want to have the interaction with you guys based on, you know, what I'm perceiving as an old school player as odd in the rules. I think th the, the context found therein helps people who may be coming to this later, um, you know, to really understand why something is one way or why a ruling is another way. So anyway, I really do appreciate your time. Uh, that's going to do it for this reading of uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. Free rules? Basic rules? Basic rules. Uh, what do you guys think of this game system so far? If you're familiar with 5e and you've been playing it for years, like most people, um, then uh, is it frustrating to go back to older versions or is it just sort of like stepping back in an old pair of pants? Uh, you know, it's a little bit weird, but it still works. Let me know in the comments. I'm curious because I'm going to be going the opposite way of jumping to this new system, which is new to me. And uh, it is feeling a little bit weird, though th I got to be honest, it doesn't sound as terrible as the reputation it's been getting. Of course, I'm not through the whole Dungeon Master's Guide either yet, so maybe it'll get weirder. But I actually am looking really, really looking forward to playing this game system with Dragonlance to see what it's like. You know, I may not like it, but I still want to give it a go. An honest shot. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'd like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button if you haven't already. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga. And I hope you join me in the celebration. Thank you for watching. This has been Adam with Dragonlance Saga. Until next time, Slanjavar!